Welcome to everybody. This is a sort of unique opportunity. This is the first of a kind. Um, this is the Hall of Fame uh, interview of a, with a PD Pod. Usually I'm doing this in limited dress, uh, oftentimes, or at least different dress than this, and in front of no crowd. So it's sort of nice to have a few in the, in the crowd. Um, but also, I think this is great to have two legends in our field in person. So uh, we are going to be interviewing today uh, Charlie Johnson, who uh, I trained under, and Scott Mubarak, who uh, others at the tra table trained under. And so also joined with us are Salil, Carter, and then Colleen, who I'm going to introduce to give a little bit of the history and background of the Hall of Fame. Thank you, Dr. Fletcher. Uh, so I'm Colleen Sabatini. I have the honor and privilege of being the chair of the Hall of Fame committee this year. And I just want to give a brief sort of intro to what the Hall of Fame is. And it started in 2020, which came out of the history committee and a desire of the board to acknowledge the phenomenal individuals have contributed significantly to the field of pediatric orthopedics. Um, not just POSNA specifically, but people who were real giants in the field and contributed in a multitude of ways. So they put together a process uh, for which members could get nominated um, under 10 different categories, only one of which is service to POSNA. There's many other categories for which people can get nominated. And so this started, uh, the inaugural class was in 2019, which was all of the previous Distinguished Achievement Award winners. And so they were all inducted under the 20, uh, 2019 banner. And then we have subsequently had three additional induction classes, uh, with this year being the third. Um, and I just am um, wanting to acknowledge the other individuals who are not here with us today from the 2022 class. Um, and that is uh, J. Richard Bowen from the DuPont Institute, uh, Dr. Robert Campbell, who um, is, has passed away, um, Norris Carroll, who was not able to be with us today, but uh, previously from Sick Kids and more recently from Northwestern. John Emmons from Boston Children's, who was not able to be with us today. Um, Dr. Johnston, of course, who we are honored to have with us today. Unfortunately, Dr. Carroll, who passed away uh, earlier this year, who was the Distinguished Achievement Award winner from last year. Um, Dr. Mubarak, who is with us. Then Dr. Uh, Dennis Weiner, um, who also passed away last year um, of colon cancer and unfortunately did not live long enough to know of his induction, but um, I know his family was very honored to hear of this. So that is our brief introduction in history. And so we have two of our uh, 2022 inductees. And Dr. Fletcher, it's an honor to have you interview them today. Thank you, Colleen. Um, so again, we're really honored to have you guys here. I think it's, it's fun. Um, and obviously, to have a personal mentor to me and sort of walk down memory lane. So, you know, it's interesting looking back, especially the time that you both came into practice, you joined uh, groups and sort of built them in very different ways. Um, so I wanted to start with you, Charlie. So, um, you know, TSRH was more or less established when you joined, um, but Tony brought on sort of a group of uh, real, you know, eventual pioneers into that, uh, into the, the mix. And so it was you, it was Dennis, uh, I believe, it was Jim Roach, and I was just sort of curious if you could talk briefly about the initial, uh, oh, and John Birchow, I think, is back there as well. So uh, so if you could talk about the the initial start to TS, your, your experience at TSRH. Well, thanks, Nick, for asking all of this. I think the first thing is to say I was a fellow with John Birch in 1981, and so we actually celebrated our 40th year of being Scottish Rite Fellows this past year. Um, so I was recruited to come back to Dallas 
from New Orleans, uh, and I might just throw in John Roberts, who was the, uh, I guess, the first president of the combined group uh, back when POS and POSG uh, merged, was my chief in New Orleans uh, when I got my first real job after, uh, after fellowship. And unfortunately, I think very few people remain uh, in, the, in the organization now who knew him or even knew who he was because he was a, a sort of a, a very local guy in New Orleans and then uh, eventually retired to the Northeast. But he uh, was the connection that I sort of developed uh, with the whole society because he was incredibly sort of enthusiastic about, about the, uh, uh, the joining of the two organizations. And was he integral at all? I mean, you obviously were there and then recruited back, but was he integral in, in sort of bringing you from Dallas out there or how, well, just well, the relationship? Yeah, yeah, well, of course, because I, uh, he needed a partner, and uh, I actually didn't get my job until like May of my fellowship oh, wow. year. You know, my wife was really uh, pretty nervous about like, what are we going to do? Yeah. You know, so, uh, but yeah, sure, he was very integral in, in kind of convincing me to come. And anyway, so Dennis Wenger, who was one of my fellowship mentors, left to go to San Diego to join Scott in 84. And so Tony Herring recruited John Birch, who had been in practice in, in uh, Ottawa, and myself to come back. And, you know, the joke was that it took two of us to replace Wenger one to do the work and one to do the talking. <laughs> and which one were you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Scott got the equivalent of two then. Yeah. yeah. He did. Well, yeah, yeah. And Birch is... No, he oh, he left. Okay, so I can say that, you know, anybody that knows John Birch knows that as soon as you ask him something, you are then going to be sitting for story time. <laughs> so... Uh, I would like to think that he did the talking. <laughs> so, and Roach was there then as well? <laughs> yes. So okay. then at the time, 1985, when I started January 1st, 1985, and we had what I have always called the big four, Herring, Roach, Birch, and Johnston. And that was the beginning of the ascendancy, if you want to say it that way, of the institution because we were then actively recruiting more fellows and that's how the sort of the whole fellowship program and the uh, expansion of the, of the hospital and its services really got going. Now, Scott, you were a West Coast guy originally. I know you went up to Toronto for your training. You came back, but it's interesting because obviously the, the, the creation of this, you know, the preeminent West Coast pediatric orthopedic powerhouse somehow dovetailed in with what Charlie was talking about. I mean, obviously, you came, I think there was only one other partner, and you sort of came and have created this. And was Dennis your first hire? Yeah, I was in, I was, well, came back from my fellowship and worked with David Sutherland at the university and then kind of out of frustration went into private practice uh, in 1982 and got so busy 
that I needed to hire a veteran to come help with all the pathology I had. And I met Dennis in Toronto, sick kids. He was a year ahead of me. And about that time, he was getting restless in Dallas because he'd been there seven years and didn't like the heat, I think. And he wanted to come to a cooler climate. And, and he joined me in 1984, as Charlie mentioned. But I want to add one other thing is that when I was doing my residency in San Diego, Tony Herring was there right. doing his... Uh, Core is yeah the naval hospital and Al Al Crawford too, and so I got to know both Al and and Tony and then Tony got the the job it just had started in Dallas uh, as he finished and then they hired Dennis shortly thereafter to be his number two guy so we have a San Diego Dallas connection going way back to early 1980s or whenever they whenever he got started I don't know when Tony got started it must have been Tony was uh, I think recruited in 77 yeah yes just when I was finishing you know that was a big year because they built the new hospital in Dallas and you got connections San Diego too so well of course because I sort of grew up in La Jolla, See, we're, we're <laughs> so I'm from there, as it were. <laughs> so, when, did you know each other early on, then, or who, uh, Johnny yeah, and I? Charlie? No, I just think we met at meetings. And Pretty much early yes. in the early, you know, the study groups. We were together in the study groups right off the bat. So. so, I'm I'm curious because this came up a little bit when I was a fellow that there was at some point some pretty intense internal competition between the two centers. It was a, this is a rumor that I think no, was no. So okay. we, I mean, we, we kind of trained each other's fellows and residents. Yeah. Rastian was yeah. with yeah. us, yeah. and Newton. we yeah. sent a few other. Newton, <laughs> yeah. Doug Wallace went Wallace. down there for, for hand fellowship with Mary Beth, and uh, so it was it was con- congenial, yeah. and and we you know we knew friendly, each other's friendly competition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I just want to acknowledge some of the names that you all have mentioned. Of course, Tony Herring and Al Crawford are both past Distinguished Achievement Award winners, so are in the POSNA Hall of Fame. And Dr. John Manley Roberts was inducted last year in the 2021 class. So just as we have these conversations and we acknowledge all these amazing people of the past, it's great to see that we're capturing them and, and, and acknowledging them through the Hall of Fame. And so if any of the listeners are interested in learning more about them, they can go to the POSNA website under the Hall of Fame tabs and learn more about all these amazing people. I, I think that's the neat thing about it is that you've recognized people that passed away and didn't have the opportunity to get into distinguished award-winning things like Tajan and, and, and John Roberts and people like that, too. Yeah. So I want to touch a little bit more on sort of the creation of these two empires because, it's, to me, in, in a way, it seems a little bit different. You started in private practice, and Salil and Carter and I were talking this morning that one of the things that made you so successful in building this this empire within the city is your availability. They were telling me stories about you driving around to different hospitals to check compartment syndrome pressures on people. And so this 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 availability, because there wasn't something there, and I'm curious if you can expound on that a little bit, on sort of how you feel that, that the growth of Rady really took off, or what, what is now Rady? Well, I mean, the, the compartment syndrome stuff was when I was a resident, actually, and because I, I kind of came up with a WIC catheter Back as a resident, as a second-year resident, I got it going, and I just needed to study the patients. And so I would run around the town. I was 24-7 on call to any orthopedist that needed pressure measurement and would go in and do it. And 
I got to see a lot of compartment syndromes and, and recognize when they had it and when they didn't have it. And I could tell them they had it, but I'm going to measure your pressure anyway. And I'd tell the guys how to even do the surgery sometimes. Uh, it was <laughs> as, a, as a junior resident, tell them, no, 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 don't cut it that way. Because <laughs> I would meet, you know, any Tom, Dick, and Harry orthopedists out there in their community. But that was why I was a resident, basically. But, but you created a sort of a, a practice within San Diego through your availability, through sort of the, you know, being present. And then obviously bringing somebody in like Dennis, who is, you know, such a, a incredible personality and innovator and researcher. Just can you talk a little bit about sort of how, how you grew in those early years? I was always interested in research. So I did quite a bit during the five years when I was with the university. And then when I went into private practice, I wasn't going to let that go. And so I kept up my academics, and so I needed somebody, not just somebody that was going to help me see patients, but also would be academically inclined. And so I, that's ended up with Wenger because of his, not only his uh, clinical expertise, but his research interests, too. And so I was, in private practice, it was a necessity to find somebody that we could do it in private practice just as well as you could at the so-called university. And so we were able to do that by building, you know, two guys that were academic and, and then thus bring in others later on with Chambers and Newton and so on and so forth. Right. And Charlie, yours was, I mean, you talked about the big four and Tony at least told me that he had hired people like you and Birch and Roach and Wenger to challenge him. And that was sort of the, how he built the, you know, the Monday night uh, pre-op conference and, and, and a group that was focused on sort of constantly pushing each other in a collegial way. Um, can you comment on sort of the early years of that and how, how you guys build off of that? Well, the singular process that Tony introduced was if no one is anxious to take credit for something, then the work gets done a whole lot easier or, or you know, the collegial part of it makes it much more efficient. The other thing that he did, which was probably, you know, it's a personality uh, aspect of Tony that is, I don't want to say it's unique, but it was certainly special, is that he felt that by having these other people who were just as smart or even smarter than he was, all he had to do was get out of the way and let everybody just do their thing. And so his contribution was to recognize smart people and then just let them do their thing. So you surround yourself with the best players who are available at the time, right? You don't draft for a particular position or anything else. You just find the best player who's available and you bring them in and just let them do what they do. We were just talking about the Patriots. That's how we did it, right? Mm -hmm. So you find the best athlete on the field. So that's what, that was Tony's approach. Right. And that's why I think his fellowship and the, and the hospital you know, reputation and everything became so famous is because he had these expert people around him, and he just let them do what they do. And the fame and fortune and everything else, the research – took care of itself. Yeah. Uh, so that was his, I mean, he, he knew how to organize a team and then just let them play. <clears throat> and the success of the, uh, of the venture, I think, is, is, you know, obvious. Yeah, but, and, and were people playing well in the sandbox most of the time? Sure, okay. well, I mean, that group, the first four, yeah. I mean, we were, we were um, obviously very friendly 
and uh, you know we took care of each other's kids and you know Roach's kids were the same age as mine so it was a family a small family and it worked perfectly now your situation Scott was a little bit different as we were alluding to because it was really just a couple of you for a while but you then mention sort of the future, so the Peter Newtons and um, Hank Chambers and whatnot, and now the group is giant. Can you speak a little bit to the legacy that has been that has developed of uh, you know what started as really a really a one person group, but was was sh- shortly thereafter a two person group? Well, we we started the fellowship, and uh, Dennis was very you know instrumental in getting that going and pretty much the same philosophy as Dallas to find people that were really really talented better than me and you know, both the surgeons and researchers and uh, let them loose and go get them trained if they you know, like Newton going off to Dallas and Hank Chambers was one of our fellows and then came back and joined us and so on and so forth. Uh, Wallace uh, later uh, went to Dallas and then came back to join us. So it was just finding really talented surgeons and hopefully with the research bent to continue. So it's the same, pretty much the same philosophy. Get the best possible person and let it stay out of the way. <laughs> yeah. And Charlie, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you all started as true general pediatric orthopedists. And I'm curious your philosophy, because as the, as the group has grown, you know, now it's becoming much more specialized. And this is obviously true in San Diego. But even when I was there as a fellow, I think the concept of it, you know, at the time was really seven pediatric orthopedists, generalists, what are your thoughts on you know that transition from when it was you know Dan and Steve and Lori and Carl and then and then you and and John and and uh, Tony to now where everybody's got starting to get a little bit more of a niche? Well, that's the trend, of course, that's happened in pediatric orthopedics is the subspecialization, and it's ironic to me because the reason I went into pediatric orthopedics was because I was interested in doing everything from, you know, from the occiput to the big toe, and that was the attraction of pediatric orthopedics, that you weren't just a arthroplasty doctor for one hip or the other or one side or, you know. So the transition over the years to the subspecialization was necessary, inevitable, because of the explosion of techniques, research, knowledge. So you couldn't possibly be the expert in everything. And so, uh, you know, the first thing I did as a, as a TSRH faculty or staff was to upgrade our spine program. In fact, that's why I was recruited to come back from New Orleans. One of, that was really the, one of the main things. We set up a, you know, a biomechanics lab. We had a biomechanist. Uh, I brought a guy named Richard Ashman with me from New Orleans. He and I developed the TSRH instrumentation uh, as a result of our move to Dallas. And so, as I said, I think the subspecialization is a little bit ironic, and I still feel like, uh, with the exception of some very complex hip surgery now, some very complex foot surgery now, but other than that, uh, I still feel like, you know, I know how to treat the entire kid. Uh, and so uh, it is an unusual sort of symbiotic relationship that I have with my junior partners. And uh, 
I better make a full disclosure that you know I've retired from from clinical practice now, so this isn't. I'm, I'm speaking of the past, but uh, you know I would refer the complex adolescent hip sort of problems to my partners that are much more interested in that, and I would refer you know some complex foot things uh, to them, and that's I think the inevitable and necessary transfer of knowledge to the subspecialist. Yes. Uh, those are my thoughts, uh, and it's, uh, you know, I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I think, as I said, it was inevitable and necessary. It, it was interesting in preparing for this. I had gone through. I mean, I, I do my I, I do my congenital knee dislocations the Johnson way. I still inject BSM into the proximal humerus F5 a bone cyst because I learned that from you. And obviously, there's a lot of spine stuff that that we did together. Steroids work better. Steroid. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I think it was like 11 of 13 healed the first yep, shot. Yep. So, uh, but the uh, but so. Um, so, and then for you, Scott, I didn't realize when we were talking this morning, I mean, you had a pretty big spine practice. Yeah. I and did. you, you, you uh, have published on Duchenne's and, and scoliosis. And I, I was getting a little bit of the background on sort of how you became what I would consider, uh, you know, a true icon in the world of foot. But it was almost as a default because you brought back somebody like Peter who really wanted to take over spine. Can you talk about how, how this concept grew at, at, uh, at Radies? Well, when I came back, David Sutherland didn't do any spines, and so I had to become the spine surgeon in our group that was all done in private practice, and I'd call up my, my Toronto Sick Kids spine people, Gillespie, primarily to, you know, show them an interesting case and tell me how to do it and that kind of stuff. So I had to do it. And then Wenger, of course, came with lots of spine experience, and so the two of us did it for, for a long time until uh, Peter got training, and he wanted to be busier, not just do everything, and so I agreed to kind of give it up uh, around 2000 and fo more focus there, and then later Dennis did too, but he stuck stuck in that for a while. I think it's been good because, we, I mean, we, pediatric orthopedists, mere general orthopedists, and we all started out as, you know, bone doctors in the 1930s or whenever we were created. And they then subspecialties. Well, peds needed enough peds people to do trauma and everything else, and now we've gradually got enough, and we can subspecialize. And I think it helps the research. I mean, it helped my career when I <laughs> it became kind of the foot guy at our place, and they all started, nobody wanted the feed stuff. So uh, I ended up, you know, doing all the stuff on osteotomies and tarsal coalitions and things like that because I got bombed with tarsal coalitions. I mean, they were finding them out of the woodwork. So it's helped the research a lot to be subspecialized. And the same in the sports and the spine. You know, those two guys that were running it really did a good job. And so you'll see it in, I think, all the specialties now. And one of your friends, uh, Vince uh, Mosca, was on the podcast two months ago, I think, or three months ago. And it was interesting because I, I have a, a big interest in the foot. It's just something that I've always uh, been endeared by. And I remember my first uh, time at IPOS, actually both of you speaking, and I thought that there was this almost endearing adversarial uh, relationship between the two where you, you, would, you would debate sort of different approaches, especially the flat foot, but obviously you're very close friends and there's a lot of mutual respect. I was curious, just because I remember that being something that stood out, if you can talk about the benefit in the academic world of having a sort of uh, academic adversary at meetings where you who who you know is going to question you and push you 
the benefit. <laughs> well, you have to be on your toes, number one. We both trained under Norris Carroll, who all got into the Hall of Fame. So it's really, really neat this year to my mentor in Toronto get in the same time as me. I haven't talked to him yet, but, uh, and, you know, a few years later, Vince trained under So we have that bond going way back to Toronto sick kids. And, yeah, you, you, you know we have difference of opinions, and you know you're going to have to debate that, so it makes you sharper. Uh, so, you know, to, to do that, and that's okay. I mean, we have got, there's many of the foot specialists in the peds world that, you know, their philosophy because you've, you know, heard it before. So it just, you just have to come armed with your ar arguments to, to the meetings, and I'm sure Charlie has comments about other adversaries I, <laughs> or <laughs> compliments of two-year field. He's the spine surgeon's general uh, adversary. There's always a question. <laughs> we were talking this morning that as, as a spine person on the podium, if Charlie stands up, my head drops because I know it's going to be a hard question I probably didn't think about because um, his questions are always good. So I'm, cur I'm curious, um, Charlie, you, you spoke about this and I know a little bit of the story, but I wanted to touch briefly about innovation. And um, you talked about T the TSRH system, and I, I always found this to be something that was really unique about uh, Texas in general, is that there was, there's always been a really big interest in innovation, whether it be John and the frame stuff that he did, or the, the Spinal X Fix, which uh, I got to see a case of, uh, which is pretty dramatic. But I think the TSRH story with regards to the spinal instrumentation was pretty unique. Can you talk on sort of how innovation uh, was something that you incorporated into general practice um, in Dallas? Well, you know, innovation is a blessing and a curse together. And the blessing is that it constantly, you're, you're challenged to come up with something that's better than what we do and it solves a problem or at least it ameliorates a, a problem that you haven't been able to you know, do something about. The curse is, is that, like we talked about yesterday in that session, if your, your results early on are so dramatically better and other things start to come into play, like fame, fortune, industry, uh, all of those complicating aspects to, to pure research and pure, you know, advancing our science, then the innovation becomes almost an unethical exercise in smoke and mirrors, if you will, or snake oil. Or, you know, and those are probably a little harsh, but those are the dangers, I think, of innovation without the control, both ethical, scientific, and then humanitarian that are required to truly make an advance in our management of things. So I feel very strongly that you know innovation is the way we push everything forward, but it takes a very special person to combine all of the aspects of it in terms of you know science and then follow-up and honesty and the humanitarian part of it and the ethics of it, so. It's, uh, I think it's a great point. I, it's interesting because uh, I didn't know, Scott, you are an innovator and developed something that I've been using now for 12 years in practice, the rhino brace, the rhino hip abduction brace that I didn't know was, was your sort of uh, your sort of baby. But I, that to me seems like something that was born and that was innovated out of necessity, almost like I would assume to some extent the TSRH system originally was born out of necessity because we didn't have that kind of um, instrumentation available. Can you talk about the 
process of developing the hip abduction brace? And well, it really started with the pavlik harness. Um, I wrote a paper in 1980 about the pitfalls of the pavlik harness, and there wasn't any good pavlik harnesses around. All the companies, they'd send me their stuff, and they were all terrible. And so we ended up changing their harnesses, and finally we ended up making our own just kind of local, and that just kind of grew into the company, the Rhino company, that uh, we got you know people to make the harness. And then the hip abduction brace, the cruiser, as we call it, a Rhino cruiser, uh, was needed for the older kids, so we had to come up with something that the kids hold their legs apart, but they could still walk in it and things like that. And so that's, that's it was, it followed the harness, basically. Was that something that was incorporated into the group in general, in other words, was was the innovation and the and the uh, research follow-up that Charlie's talking about something that you incorporated into sort of the the practice of the group that you know we need to test these things internally because we've got this large population of patients and we need to just or to validate their uh, the utility. No, not really. Uh, Dr. Wenger and I basically ran this company and tested the stuff ourselves to be sure it worked and the different sizes and it kept it kind of. Uh, away from being part of the group or being distant from it as much as we could, you know, and just let that work its way out. And it was it was a minor enough thing that it really didn't, I don't think, bother anybody. And Charlie, uh, getting back to the Spinal X-Fix, nobody's probably making a ton of royalties off of the Spinal X-Fix. I don't think that's going to get out there. But again, this was something that, that I think Dallas is unique in, that they have a mechanics lab and they have the ability to fabricate materials. And so the creation of that device, which is unbelievable, is something that was born out of necessity, that a place like Dallas, a place like San Diego are going to be some of the few places that are going to see something that complex. And I feel like there's a lot of history of that at Dallas. Um, uh, am I right there? Is that is the, the, the concept of sort of building something out of necessity for a pathology that you're seeing well, so the, the X-Fix for the spine was basically a combination of, uh, <clears throat> you know, pins and wires in the bone and then building giant Ilazara frames to go around the patient and anchoring it, you know, in the spine in one spot and in the pelvis or the upper femur or something like that. And, you know, it was the spina bifida population that really uh, got it, uh, that was the necessity because you had, you know, horrible skin and back problems and uh, deformity problems that were not solved by internal fixation. Uh, in those days, we didn't really have good skin closure, for example. And so, uh, uh, and we had a couple of patients, uh, probably the most famous ones were the patients who had their pelvis opened because they had cloacal dystrophies and things like that. And there was no other way to, to allow their pelvis to open to make room for internal organs, for example, or for a, for a female patient to become pregnant. It was phenomenal to, to be able to do that. So it, just was, it was a combination of spine fixation, uh, bone fixation, and giant frames that went around all the way around. And yes, we could we could fabricate that in our in our biomechanics lab. Yeah, for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to see or care for a patient <laughs> with a with a spinal X-fix, it's, it's something impressive. Um, well, I know we're we're a little bit short on time. I yeah. wanted to talk about sort of the uh, as we close out 
this next step of both of your careers. And in particular, you know, as you've transitioned out of your clinical practice into retirement, I know you're uh, spending time on a small island a little bit west of where you used to be. Can you give advice to myself and somebody in the mid-40s or, you know, people uh, who are going to be listening to this on things to think about as they sort of transition into that period of their of their lives that you've learned over the last couple of years? Well, I've always had lots of outside interest. Uh, we, we live on a outside of San Diego on a farm, basically, that we've raised llamas, and now we have a vineyard. And so I've always had lots of outside things. I'm a collector by nature, so I've collected art and collectible things from the South Pacific, because that's kind of my interest. And uh, and now I'm, I'm spending time writing about uh, my collections, basically my art collections, and, uh, and it overflows into some of my artifacts that I've got. And some of them i got to start selling, so I'm doing that, too. Uh, we learned how to d- use eBay really well. but <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think you got to have lots of interest. Uh, wherever I go, I've uh, had interest. I, when I travel, I made a point to the fellows, when you go visit Europe or something, go spend an extra week or wherever you're going after your meeting and uh, make friends with the docs over there. And Elaine uh, uh, DeMeglia was a classic example who spent some time in Dallas, too. I, we've become real good friends. He's from Montpellier, France, and he's taken me around uh, France in various times, and I take him to Hawaii and showed him Hawaii and Captain James Cook's place and so on and so forth. So. We've, we've had fun, and I continue to do that. So, I so go. staying busy with lots of interest. To, yeah. yeah, lots and lots of interest. Yeah. So I'm more busy than I was working. <laughs> and, Charlie, you're spending more time, I think, uh, outside of Texas. Um, you guys have well, some time out there. I have another home, but yeah. it's just like Scott. But uh, I don't spend enough time there yet because I'm still very much engaged uh, in terms of teaching, and I have research projects that I'm still doing. So uh, I'm probably not as advanced as he is in, well, so in, in, in separating yeah, myself yeah. From, the, uh, from the mother hospital uh, or program. And everything that Scott said is absolutely true. And that's, a, that's uh, everyone should heed that wisdom. Have you continued, though, because obviously you are involved in the training. Has that been something that's been a little bit harder to give up um, for you just sort of mentally? Because some people can sort of stop cold turkey, and some people really, I think I'm going to struggle stopping cold turkey. I think I'm going to enjoy the education part and sort of hang on to that as long as I can, even when I'm done operating. Mm -hmm. Has that been a challenge for you? No. uh, I have physical problems that led me to stop operating. And I am the first to advise young surgeons to either stand up straight or put the table at a level where they don't have to bend or do some really (laughs) strange uh, physical uh, positions to be able to do the surgery. Uh, Because, you know, I found myself starting to make or thinking I was making decisions about the operation so that I could get over it as quickly as possible because I wasn't sure that physically I wanted to stay here and continue a a 10-hour spine operation. And so when you realize that your physical condition is starting to uh, perhaps cloud your judgment, it's time to stop. It's pretty safe advice. (laughs) And so uh, it it was not difficult for me to say it's time to stop. Yeah. Uh, 
I still will scrub with my uh, other partners when they ask, and I come in and help them with you know suggestions or doing a part of the case or something. But really, the the important thing was knowing when it's time to stop. That's good. So. I don't know if uh, if anybody else has questions. My question would be, so in the Hall of Fame, is to be inducted when you get nominated, the people that nominate you have to identify a few categories for which you are, are particularly notable. And so I'm going to talk about each of those categories for each of you and ask you to talk to then the next generation of how do you excel in those areas. So Dr. Mubarak, for you, your induction into the Hall of Fame was based primarily on your contributions to the literature and your service to the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America. So as you reflect on those two areas in your life, which obviously were amazing if we look at your track record under each of those headings, um, what allowed you to succeed and achieve in those areas? And what words of wisdom do you have to the younger folks in POSNA for how to be successful in contributions to the literature and in service to the organization? Well, the, the literature, you have to have curiosity and really want to study everything and just, you know, learn about the things around you, the diseases you see. And so that was pretty easy. Either You either have a, that curiosity or you don't. I mean, it's really hard to get a fellow or a resident to say, go do a project, and then they're just doing it just as a mission. Uh, and I just have that curiosity. So I don't think it's, it's a tough thing to, to teach somebody. You just really want to learn answers. As far as the leadership stuff, I, a long time ago, I, I almost got stuck doing some committee work for the academy and running some meetings. And I, I made the decision that it would take too much of my time away, even though the academy's good and I like the academy. But Posner was a different thing. I, I wanted to spend the time helping them. And that was the one dedication that I would do is to help them with committees and stuff. But I, you just can't do Western Ortho and AAOS and run to me because it takes away from your research time, your clinical practice, your family. And But POSNA was really the only exception where I, I said I will do whatever necessary you know, in, in the POSNA world as far as uh, you know committees and, and you know, help them with, uh, I think we helped with the first... Uh, when they had the meetings at the academy, the specialty day, and I was one. Of the, I think I took out the first one of the specialty days, so I don't think they do it anymore, right? But that was some of the things that I would help with. So. That's great advice. And your committee service and your council service, your board service, and, and of course, as, as the president of the organization, is just phenomenally admirable. Like when we were reviewing everybody's CVs to see the extensive contributions that you have made, it is it is humbling to see the, the amount of time of your life you have dedicated to, to this organization and to the future of pediatric orthopedics. And on behalf of all of us, thank you for, for that service. Thank Dr. You. Johnston, um, your categories we've talked a little bit about already. So one was um, Pioneer and really uh, your innovation in pediatric orthopedic spine surgery. Uh, also, um, you were acknowledged, as was Dr. Mubarak, for just teaching and, and really nurturing that next generation. And then I would argue one of the things, that, the many things you could have been acknowledged for was your humanitarianism. And of course, you are a 2020 humanitarian award winner for your work in Palestine. So of any of those categories, what would you want to share with the next, you know, the future generations of pediatric orthopedic surgeons? How do you, um, how do you excel as an innovator? Or how do you excel as a teacher or a humanitarian? Any of any of those areas? <laughs> how I long leave, do we have? I leave it open. <laughs> I leave it open to you. Which one you you would like to talk about? Well, I think I'm proudest of two things. One is uh, the ability to look back 
and report on uh, procedures and techniques which we did, we sort of took for granted or had had been in widespread uh, practice and turned out to be not very good ideas. And in particular, uh, you know, our work, I did an awful lot of uh, circumferential full releases for club feet for probably about 15 years. And at the end of the 90s, I did a uh, gate lab study with Lori Carroll. And you know, shout out to her as well, uh, because she is probably one of the most accomplished people I have ever been associated with. And I am proudest of my mentorship and then collegiality and everything else with her. She is incredible. So based on the gate lab studies of what we did with club feet, we completely changed our practice because it was obvious that this extensive release and reconstruction of the foot that we were doing in infants for club feet was the wrong thing to do. And at the end of the 90s, we had started doing the French technique because of my friendship and, you know, learning from Demeglio. And then, you know, we also just quickly shifted into Ponsetti because this was what was needed to rectify the poor results that we were getting from this, we called it a reconstruction, but it was turning out to be, you know, an awful thing to do. And so we did the same thing with pseudarthrosis of the tibia, and we had a, some hamstring uh, releases and some arthrogryposis things. And so all of the sort of operations that we were just doing and taking for granted, it was important to report on the shall we say, poor outcomes of things that had been taken for granted. And then the humanitarian part, I also feel very strongly about because basically we were asked to go, I was asked to go to Palestine to help them start treating spine deformity. And this was probably around the 2000s, early on. And the difference is, is that in order to start a spine program, you can't just fly in, do the surgery, and leave. And so our challenge was, and Dick Gross and Hugh Watts, and there are several other uh, folks that were involved, was we needed to go and mentor someone and teach someone how to do this and to stick with it and to visit them often and to help them and basically to teach someone to do this rather than simply be a mission project where you, as I said, fly in, do the surgery, and leave. Uh, and so our ability to transform that uh, process into something where we actually left people in charge who knew what, how to do it and now are doing it themselves uh, and doing it competently and safely and everything else uh, this, is, this is the way to do a humanitarian project in a underserved area. And so I think that's, that's the other thing that I would take great pride in, in, uh, in being a pioneer. <laughs>
Well, I think with that, we are, again, incredibly honored to have both of you here. And as Colleen was saying, your, uh, your records are just remarkable. Um, it, was, uh, it was really inspiring to, to read through your CVs and journal articles. And obviously, I've known Charlie for a while, so um, I appreciate his mentorship of me. But uh, congratulations to both of you. Incredibly well-deserved. And uh, we always thank people for listening. So we appreciate anybody who's listening to this.